Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, as I have mentioned in the past, one of the fun developments of the podcast has been that more and more often we get recommendations for people we should have on the show. And that is absolutely the case with the guest that joins us today. On more than one occasion, I have been asked, so when are you having Camden Martin on the show? And it was pretty funny because it was never, ever presented as an if. It was always presented as a when. So glad we get to talk to you today. Camden Martin is an incredible advocate for French language education in the state of Maine. He has a crazy personal story, which I'm looking forward to getting into. Uh, he is on the board of the Alliance Française of Maine and the Franco-American Collection at the University of Southern Maine. He's currently a French teacher at a former bilingual school, which is kind of fun. Camden, welcome to the French Canadian Legacy Podcast. Thank you very much, Jesse. I'm very happy to be with you. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction. Of course. So let's start with your story. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Auburn, uh, but I put them together as Lewis and Auburn here in the state of Maine. Gotcha. Now, let's, maybe we should just talk about that now. Because if you see that all the time, Lewis and Auburn kind of listed as, a, as though they're kind of one entity. Yeah. Uh, they, they are not one entity, correct? <laughs> they are not one entity, especially if you're from Lewis and Auburn, you do not consider that both of them uh, the same entity. But in the greater scheme of things, they are kind of like the one entity. I don't think everyone's going to agree with me with that, but in the greater scheme of things, at least I kind of, how can I put it? When you're from, let's say like you're in Lewiston and then they're like, oh, where are you from? And I say Auburn. Then they say, oh, you're one of them. (laughs) Gotcha. But but, um, overall, uh, in terms of history-wise, in terms of Franco-American history, uh, very, you know, connected. Do you guys on the Auburn side ever get mad that when they list the top cities the top francophone cities usually you see it as woodsocket and lowell and manchester and lewiston auburn doesn't obviously get invited to the party sometimes well that's it it doesn't bother because at that point it's they mean us you know like lewiston because because only a portion of auburn was really franco like new auburn which i usually call it the lewiston enclave of, of auburn gotcha that's cool awesome now did you grow up with french in the house um, actually not. Um, so when, uh, when I was born, I was the fourth, um, fourth child from my, my father, but the second with, you know, with my mother. So he had two older sons from a previous marriage. And um, my father, if you will, is the last of his, uh, like of the Martin family that were French was his first language. Sure. Um, but for me, I grew up just speaking English um, until I was learning French and like, you know, as we all do is like in middle school or high school. Um, I always knew that I was a French descent, but that was about it. I had really no, no references in the French language. Gotcha. So it wasn't like, I know in my case, I would hear it during the holidays because like my grandparents' generation would all talk to each other. And then of course we always have like the pork pies during the holidays or like gâteau sandwiches for lunch at school. So we would have like croton and people would have tortillas from time to time. And you would, I would hear my grandparents maybe speaking uh, French and like great aunts and uncles, but it was, you know, it's funny. It really wasn't 
incredibly present. Like you knew you were like a French Canadian descent, but that was about it. And you kind of reminded him from, from time to time, but it wasn't like very um, in your face at all. Gotcha. Or at least not in my face. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. And so you just picked it up when you got to school because you had to? Is it? Well, yeah. So a funny story. Um, you know, I have an older sister and she had taken French before. So I was just like, ah, I'll take French because if I have questions. I can ask her. I could ask mm-hmm. my father. Um, you know, it was one of those things. It was almost like out of ease. And um, I started in eighth grade with very, very basic stuff, continue on in high school. And then in high school, I kind of had this, um, you know, almost like identity search, if you will, about, you know, who am I, what, you know, where am I from? And then I really kind of said to myself, if I really want to understand who I am, I have to learn to speak French and I have to learn how to speak it fluently. And so I was basically taking what I was learning from school. And then trying to add on to it as much as I could in my own, as whatever way I could outside of school, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And you were significantly smarter than me when I was in school, unfortunately. Because for <laughs> me, having, having grown up with French, when I got to junior high school, all of a sudden they offered Spanish. And Spanish was something cool and new that I'd never seen before. So I ended up taking Spanish. Taking Spanish. Junior high, <laughs> which means I had a couple of years, so I may as well take it in high school, which means I may as well take it in college. So, yeah. Oh, isn't it crazy for me anyway that decision I made was like 12 years old meant that yeah and it had ramifications each following year yeah um, it's kind of wild so yeah, so you not, so you're going to high school and you're like you know what this French thing I'm, I'm I'm learning a lot I need to learn more because I'm really curious as to my personal yes. identity um, how did it develop into something more than that yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'm one of those people like when I really like something I ha- I have to like delve into it you know i had to go like 110 percent, almost to a fault (laughs) Um, you know so all of a sudden i was just like you know what i'm going to um, i set the goal i'm going to learn french i remember one time i was talking to my french teacher and we were learning les miserables from Victor Hugo, but in english and i remember saying to my my french teacher i said one day i'm going to be able to read a book like this in french and even him he was like oh you know hopefully but he knew how (laughs) yeah yeah. And um, what I used to do was I used to uh, put my phone in French. I used sure. to play, uh, you know, I used to put everything I had in French. I used to like play video games in French. I would listen to the radio and not really understand anything, but just I knew somehow I knew that if I played it in the background, it would like um, have an impact on, you know, recognizing the words later on. It would play on my accent, things like that. And then I started talking to my grandmother in French with what a lot I could. And then that would build on um, when I would hear people speak French and then like in the street, I'd literally stop them no matter like how old they are. And I just start speaking. I'd make all kinds of mistakes, but I knew that that's the only way I was going to get better. And I, I couldn't really care if I was making mistakes. I just wanted to, I was so hungry to speak French, you know? Gotcha. And this is all first couple of years of high school. Yeah. And then it got to the point that um, that's kind of what I was known for in high school. And I was not only was I doing research about, um, you know, the language, but I was doing research about Franco-Americans, French Canadians, French language in North America. I started like doing research and then saving it on like an external hard drive, uh, looking at pictures, started asking around. And then um, there was kind of like this uh, scholarship that I found out about where I could go to France for two months. Before that, I was even looking to see what kind of programs I could do. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to Quebec. I wasn't sure if I wanted to go to France. My parents didn't really think that I was going to go anywhere, you know, like, (laughs) you know, it's just a pipe dream. 
Um, and they weren't necessarily keen on their, you know, their young son going anywhere. And uh, all of a sudden I got presented with this opportunity to go to France for two months. And to, I was to, um, I had to write an essay in both English and French, two different essays, um, explaining why I think it would be beneficial for me to learn French and go there and why I deserve it more than anybody else. In other sure. words, it wasn't quote, it wasn't said like that, but that's kind of what the gist was, if you will. Sure. And um, I tried it just thinking, you know, why not? It's an experience. Um, it was all out of all the United States. So I didn't really think I had a chance of winning. Um, and then I, I submitted it. And I explained basically what it meant to me as an, you know, for identity and other things I was doing. And then a week, a month of silence goes by. And then all of a sudden I get an, a message, an email basically saying, oh, Camden, uh, I'm reaching out to you just to say that it's between you and one other person out of all of the United States. Wow. Or going, and then I got a, one more like phone interview. And then like a week later, you're going to France. That's awesome. And, uh, Bummer for excited. that other guy. But yeah. yeah. No, that's but, uh, way, way cool. Yeah. Well, I'm going to pick this up in a bit, but I want to pick up on something you actually mentioned earlier. Cause you talked about how you started looking into like the, the Franco American story history. Sure. Did you discover yours? Did, did you look uh, in? Did you find out like, where, where's my family from and how did yeah, we end up in Lewiston? Or Auburn, I started, sorry. Yeah, I had started a little bit um, in the sense I started asking my older brother, my uh, my grandfather. I had done a little bit of like genealogy. Um, that was kind of when ancestry was just becoming a thing. Um, sure. And I really try, I tried it out for the first time, but I didn't have like a, an account. <laughs> so you can sure. only go so far. So I right. really was just getting like hearsay, you know, from grandparents who they were. Um, it really wasn't until relatively recently that I was really able to expand about who um, you know, who was coming down to this area. I always knew that I was of Quebecois descent, primarily from my father, and my mother was half Quebecois, half Acadian. Oh, wow. So I was very lucky to have all both. And you've traced all your branches all the way back at this point? Yeah, pretty much all of them back to France. And when I'm like, That's awesome. like once again, I, I'm pretty tedious. So I have to get like each and every single branch. And that takes a long time. Of course. <laughs> I have quite all of them, but it's, it's pretty there. I mean, I found some pretty unique stuff. You mentioned unique stuff. Do you have a fun story? Well, yeah. one thing I, I, I found out was um, for on my father's side, on one of the strands of the family, you know, if you're flying through the, the women's side and then that yeah. family, I found out that on some of them were coming from Acadia and the original one that came to Acadia was actually coming from the Azores Island off of, that, uh, off of Portugal. Really? Okay. Yeah. And, um, and uh, so that was really interesting. I had no idea that I, there was Portuguese. <laughs> And the Acadians that came over this way. Portuguese. Yeah, Portuguese Acadian. fishermen. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. No, that's yeah. that's cool. Yeah. yeah. Something you don't expect to find when you do your research. Absolutely. All right, awesome. All right. So heading back to France. We are now in uh, are you 16? Something like that. that yeah, I was exactly 16. Yeah. 16 I was, years was old. Year. Uh, I just finished sophomore year and it was my junior year in high school that I went. Gotcha. So what do you do? Where, first of all, what town are you in? What are you doing? Uh, for so they months? sent me to Nîmes in the south of France. Nîmes. Nîmes. Gotcha. So Nîmes, um, which is an interesting, really interesting place because it has many, many, many facets of history, but it's most famous for its Roman history. So me being very passionate about history was so awesome. And what's interesting is the, the two months that I was there ended up turning to two years. <laughs> now, how did that, that happen? I got along with my exchange family really well, and they saw a lot of... Um, you know, like they saw me really trying to go above and beyond and immersing sure. myself. And uh, we, we sat down with the school and they said, well, 
okay, if you're going to be here for two years, you're going to have to take le baccalauréat, which is the test that all French students have to take. And so I was like, oh, wow. You know, I heard about it. In school, <laughs> and I like, that's like so, so difficult. And I said, you know what, I'm going to do it. And they even asked me, they said, you can do this as candidat libre, which means like, it's like a free candidate in the sense that you might have, it might've been a little bit easier on me as a foreigner, but I said, no, I want to do it just like everybody else, even though I knew it was going to be harder. And uh, so what's is interesting is I had to catch up on three months of physics and chemistry because I, they didn't think I was going to be there for that long. So I had to catch up mm -hmm. on that. And um, there I was that first year I did half like a portion of the baccalaureate. And then the, the next following year I had done a portion of it and, uh, and I did well on it. And I was really, really excited. <laughs> uh, it was really cool. And basically in the United States, they're just like, ah, since you did that, you don't even need to do the SATs. You're, you're all set. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, what did yeah. you end up after that thing? Uh, after that, I ended up coming back to the United States. Um, I wanted to go back to school in, in, in France, but I wasn't quite sure how I was going to work. I needed to make money, you know, to you know pay for all this. So I, I took a year off to work. I ended up working for a, a local company that did uh, customer service for uh, people from Quebec. So I used to do, I was on the phone answering, you know, like uh, <laughs> fitness programs and things like that. And uh, I did awesome. that for a year afterwards. And, and it was interesting coming back from France. That's kind of when a lot more people that were of French, uh, you know, that speak French were coming to the area that were coming from uh, Francophone Africa, which wasn't quite the case before I was, before I had left. Um, and so all of a sudden I'm coming back to Lewis and Auburn and I have all kinds of new people I can speak French with. And they kind of became my new, um, my new friends really. And because my other friends from before had moved on, you know, to different places, I went to college and whatnot. And then they became my, my new friends. And the people that I spend the most time with today. So we're talking about people from like Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda and Burundi and Djibouti and so on and so forth. Is that area, because I know we've had a similar experience here in Manchester, because uh, for we were for a while in a refugee placement city. So yeah. we'd, have, we'd have a bunch that would come in every year. Is that kind of the same thing in your area? Similar to a degree, or they would be coming to Portland, Maine, and then they would sure. then come to this area because it's a little bit cheaper for like rent and whatnot. And they found people they could communicate with. Yeah, and they could speak French here. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so you spend some time doing some customer work with people in Quebec. What happens after that? So what's happening after that is um, uh, my parents are like, well, we'd like you to, you know, stay here in the United States. We've we lost you for like two years, <laughs> so we want you to stay by. And so I'm also very passionate about wildlife. So there was a school here in Maine in in a place called Unity Maine that's also called Unity College. I was starting to go to first semester. And it was really neat because it was doing like the wildlife stuff and I you know, met some really good friends. Uh, but the problem was I always kind of felt like I was missing out on, you know, education in French. It had been two years and, you know, it was kind of difficult for me to write again in English. Not that it was difficult because I didn't know my words, but I spent so much time trying to focus just write correctly in French that like that was all my reference, my frame of reference. And so I was really kind of like seeking out an experience where I could go back to speaking in French. And so I was working there kind of like as a student ambassador. And one of my jobs was to, for the, the, the person that was responsible for recruiting um, foreign students, my job for her was to contact different schools that had like-minded, um, you know, missions, you know, green and ecology and whatnot, and sure. to see if we could create some sort of partnership. So she gave me one day, she was like, okay, you're going to contact Canada, you know, you know, you're back Canada. So I was like, okay, Quebec. And so I was looking for places that, um, you know, had like an environmental based programming in Quebec. And I came across Le Cégep de Saint-Félicien in the Lac-Saint-Jean region. So about three hours north of Quebec City. 
So I give them a call and I'm explaining what it is and I was explaining what kind of partnerships we had, we were looking to establish. And um, he was the person I was speaking to is kind of like, okay, we would be interested, but you know, they would need to do this, this, and this. They need to prove that they're proficient in French. And you know, you could tell that they were used to wanting to create partnerships. And then all of a sudden, and then he's like, yeah, and it's going to cost, you know, like 185 bucks. I was like, excuse me, and he was like, yeah, 185 dollars for the year, and I was like, Canadian, oh. uh, and he was like, yeah, and so he said, um, I said, well, <laughs> now I'm, I'm gonna have to think about this myself. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, so I go back home and I'm talking to my parents, and my father tells this really funny story where he comes to pick me up for Christmas break, and uh, he's coming to pick me up, you know, from for the dorm for like the two weeks, you know, thinking that you know I'm coming back to the school afterwards, and. He, all of a sudden he says he starts seeing me putting all of my things that I had in my dorm into um, the uh, into the car and he was really oh by the way that my roommate was from Manchester we, he was a pelerin pelerin from Manchester I'm serious <laughs> a great guy I'm a fan of the Mario. Yeah. yeah and um, so my father is he's getting all upset at me like what are you doing you know why are you taking all your stuff I said I'm not coming back what do you mean you're not coming back you got a great scholarship blah 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 I said I'm going to this school up here I got accepted I'm gonna go there. And he was all upset. And then I told him how much it costs and everything. And then he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then we, went, we drove up there in the middle of January of 2015. It was really cold up there. That year it was the coldest <laughs> ever experienced, negative 48. It was a really cold year that year. And, uh, and then my father saw the programming I was going to have, the welcoming I was getting. And uh, he knew that that was the best choice for me. And then I ended up sitting there for three and a half years and I got my degree in environmental protection. You are, yeah, I know how they do. You guys are much tougher than me. I could not handle <laughs> minus 40 degrees. I mean, no you don't want like, to spend time outside, but that's the coolest I ever did feel. It was like negative 30. Yeah, I know. Once um, I was, we used to, I used to get a group together, my sister and a bunch of our friends. We would head up and we would do Quebec City New Year's every year. Oh, yeah, and nice. We get an Airbnb and they have the big party right outside the walls. It was a good time. And the last year I went, I don't know how it cold it ended up being i know when we left the house earlier that day it was minus 27 uh, before windshield and this mm. is the story i tell everybody so we get there and i purchase a guinness and i hand the guinness to my friend Haley, and i went and used the restroom when Haley handed me back that guinness it was already slush yeah i spent eight dollars canadian for zero sips of that beer because it's like, low alcohol content <laughs> it's like that is cold that you know, when you get in turns frozen in the time it takes you. Yeah, I've, I've walked home from school, which was a five minute walk, and um, the water that I had would turn to slush. Yeah, no, that good on you. I mean, I could do it for four days, week, sure. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if I could handle a month of that. Yeah, so. it was quite a lot. That's awesome. So, now what I find interesting is so you, I mean, you learn, you start French in school, mm. and you really develop it in your time over in France and now all of a yep. sudden you're in Quebec you're right now we, we hear a lot on this podcast of the if not actual difference perceived significant difference between mm. the French spoken in France versus sure. the French spoken in Quebec and how you can each side can identify the other immediately and each side has right. various thoughts on how they view the other side's right. use of French immediately so how did that go for you so that's a great question. Um, I was basically, because, how can I put this? Um, because I spent so much time in France and that was my first immersion contact, that's what my accent became. 
Sure. And on top of that, because I lived in the south of France, my my accent, my most comfortable accent in French almost became the southern accent from France. So kind of like the Marseille accent, which sure. is very different from like, let's quote unquote Parisian accent. So when I came to Quebec, I, I knew that people weren't that familiar with the, the, the southern accent. So I adopted a more standard French accent from France. And that was the way I spoke. And so pretty much everyone thought I was from France. I mean, I would have to like take out my passport for people to believe me. And I could roll along with it. You know, sometimes I would meet people in uh, like, you know, at a party or something and they would ask me my name. And instead of explaining like, okay, my name's Camden. I'm from the United States. I lived in France. Then I came here. I would just present myself as Martin as my last name because it's a very mm. common first name because Camden's very hard for people from French sometimes to, to pronounce it. So I'd just be like, yeah. I'm Martin and I'm from Nîmes. And they'd be like, oh, it's Martin from Nîmes, you know? Yeah, and then sure. sometimes I'd just be known as that. That's <laughs> um, awesome. And afterwards, you know, <laughs> if I knew that I was going to be spending time with someone, I would explain to them, okay, you know, my name's Camden. I'm Franco-American, a French-Canadian background. I spent time in the south of France and now I'm here. Um, and uh, so, however, I, I have kind of like a sensitive ear. And so I kind of pick up the accent wherever I am. And so I'd often... You know, when I'd speak to people back in France, they'd be like, oh, now you're, you're picking up a Quebecois accent. So it become kind of a mix, if you will. But um, depending on who I'm talking to, I try to adopt my accent, um, sure. especially here when talking to Franco-Americans. I, I tend to take a, like a, a more like Quebecois accent when talking with people from around here, if I'm talking to my family, um, because they're not really exposed to accents from France. And so it's, I find it's the best way to like avoid alienating anybody, you know just to make sure like, you know, I, like someone from around here and whatnot, because, you know, French, of course, as you know, in Manchester and other parts of New England, those who speak it a lot of times they refer to as speaking the, the poor French, which is completely sure. false. But I do that in a way so that they're feeling more comfortable and, you know, the conversation moves a lot more smoothly like that. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. I'm curious if you, I mean, having that experience and coming back uh, to the Lewiston Auburn area, was there like a, even a difference in vocabulary? Because um, that's something I hear a lot. Like I, I was talking to somebody from Drummondville and I, I used the word meme. And he's, he started laughing. He's like, we haven't said that since, you know, my grandparents were talking yeah. about their memes. Like nobody yeah. says that they hear anymore. And that's I've heard true, a lot of other stuff like that where there's certain words that are even, even different than they're being yeah. used now. So Franco-American French is very similar to an older Quebecois French that was spoken, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, you know, what really began to change the, the dialects in, in Quebec was the La Révolution Tranquille, you know, the mm. Quiet Revolution really changed it. And since we didn't have that in Franco-American, uh, Franco-American, um, you know, there's that kind of that, like that you know, difference that created, um, I was in Lac Saint-Jean region. And so it's a little bit more like rural. Um, and so a lot of the, there was a lot of accents that were similar here, the accent in Lucent Arbor and the most common Quebecois accents, like from the accent from La Beauce, because it's just on the other side, that's sure. a really common accent that came to this area. Um, but Lac Saint-Jean is very similar, um, in the vocabulary, depending on who you talk to, it'd be different. But if like I talk to young people and I use like certain words from here, they would notice, but interestingly enough, um, most of the words, like when my father came up to visit, he could understand pretty much all of it. There wasn't too much difference, you know? Yeah, no, that's cool. So you're up there a few years, come back. What, what, what did, you, did you always, first of all, did you always intend to come back? And I, I really was happy in living in Canada. Um, let me put it this way. Canada and Quebec really welcomed me. Um, 
And That's awesome. As a government, um, as a people, and I felt really at home there. And to the point that, for example, going to school there, I was able to pay that price because they considered me as a French student from France. And that allowed me to pay the 185 compared to like the five, you know, the five grand it might have been. And so it was really, really cheap for me to stay up there. And so um, they would make, you know, they were always really accommodating. Like when it came time to me file taxes up there, there was like solidarity credits and it was just really nice. And I was not quite sure what I wanted to do, but, you know, I had to leave because my, you know, my parent was running up and um, I was thinking about coming back home and I wanted to, uh, you know, work in the field that I had studied. I wanted, you know, as a young person, it's easier when your parents are nearby. So if you need help, you can count on them, you know, as you're sure. building out your young adult life. And so I come back to the United States and come back to Maine and I'm like, ah, I have to speak English again. I don't like this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyone that knows me, they know if they, and if they speak French, they know that with me, I'm not going to speak English with them, even if I know they can, because I just, I don't like to, if I don't have to. That's awesome. And, um, so I'm coming back and, you know, I'm kind of bummed about it, but at the same time, you know, you know, we'll see what comes. And I also knew that there would be all kinds of programs and initiatives I could work on also that would be stimulating. But I come back, I can't find a job in my field. Um, you know, no one, they're not quite sure what I did for a program, even though it was very hands-on, it's an excellent program. So I ended up having to work at a FedEx actually, FedEx Kinko's in the meantime. Um, yeah. Actually, my French language did serve me quite helpful. I mean, I probably speak French almost once a week because people coming in and they need help and stuff like that, you know, coming from different countries, especially when I was in Portland. So that was helpful. I did that for a little bit, and then I ended up getting a job at a local museum uh, that used to be one of the major uh, mills. Like you have the Amiskeg, we had the Bates Mill here. Not as large, but really large for the state of Maine. I think at its height, you know, we're talking like 5,000 employees in the 1950s, so it was huge. Mm. And uh, so I started working in a museum that talked all about the industrial period, therefore French-Canadian immigration, and I did that for about a year and a half. Yeah, can, we, can you tell, that's the Museum LA, is that? Yeah, correct, okay, yeah. Tell, let's hype this museum a little bit, because yeah. <laughs> I've never been, I need to go. Yeah. If, if I show up tomorrow, what am I going to see in this museum? Why should I yeah. make the point? So, uh, Museum LA is really great, because uh, what it does is it mixes general history with individual people's stories, and that makes it more relatable in another way. So, I was the tour guide, if you will. I'm the one who would, the visitor services guy, I would explain all the history to people. So you awesome. walk into the building, all, right away you smell the old, you know, like the smell of a mill, you know. Um, you see the old floors, you see the old stains in the floor. So you would come into our immediate first um, gallery and that gallery is our contemporary gallery, so that would change out. And then, you know, you would visit around there, whatever that subject was. And then I'd bring you upstairs, you would walk onto the floor and you would just look out in this, pretty large expanse of empty floor where you would see the old looms that had been. And I would come in and I'd explain about working conditions. I would point out to the canal system. Um, I would talk about French Canadian immigration, Irish immigration to the area at the beginning. Um, you know, and then I would talk about the shoe industry. I would talk about a variety of things. So when you're in there, you're immersed with seeing, like you can imagine the space. And I would try to, you know, tell you how it would sound and how deafening it was, you know, how hard it was to breathe all the cotton in the air. Then we'd make our way around into the, um, another space where like we had things on walls and, you know, like more classical sense of a museum. And then you would come into another room and we had all kinds of portraits of people up on the walls. And those are actual individuals that had worked in the Bates Mill. And we tell their story. So sometimes I'd point out to a person and tell their actual individual story about what it was like at the mill, you know, what, it, you know, what was their life like. And uh, people would actually wear these little note like cards around their neck. And it was kind of, you know, to tell someone's story. And so they could honor that person when they were walking around. Um, and then I would talk, you know, 
how the city developed, um, you know, other immigrants coming to the area, the shoe industry, you know, we'd actually get a chance to look at actual looms. Uh, you get to talk, you know, talk about like, see the different processes of how like a bedspread would come to be, how I shoes think. are made. So a very industrial sense, but at the same time, we talk about a lot of individual stories and whatnot. And I, I really enjoyed it. It's very rewarding, very human, you know, I, it's silly to yeah. say like that, but very human experience, humanizing experience. Yeah. It seems like a place I got to visit with my yeah. mom. I got to, um, one of the cooler things that has happened to me in this entire, you know, process of doing this podcast and stuff is my mom and I, we went down to Lowell. Oh, nice. Uh, to their museum down there. And they have a working loom room and say, there was a right. gentleman again, giving the tour and stuff. And he was, he had a loom. He was trying to explain some of the things that he just, I felt bad for him. Kind of midway, he kind of forgot what this certain processes was. And my mom was just like, yeah, I used to work on this machine and she just took over. And it was oh, like, wow. this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Cause she was, was, it was, the, yeah, it was, the, it was the exact, yeah, it was the exact machine she had worked on. She, she went to actually her story is kind of crazy. She would go to, you know, high school here, walk across yep. the river and do the uh, three to 11 after school yep. in the middle. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'd have those, the same shifts here as well. Yeah. It would be 24 hours, 24 seven hours. You go to school, high school, and then go in and work in a full, a full, full time job, full time yeah. job in a mill. That's not even like that's not that's some heavy lifting. Really difficult work, hard, dangerous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was it, that was the same case for most of the Franco Americans and other immigrants here. It was, that was their life for the majority of them. Yeah, no, that's crazy. All right, so you leave there. What made you want to teach? Uh, so, um, it's so funny you asked that question because uh, both of my parents, you know, were teachers. Um, more, more so my mom, but my father in, in many respects was a teacher. Uh, and I always said, I do not want to be a teacher. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just knew how much work it was, how underappreciated it was. Um, I, I wanted to do other things. And um, turns out with uh, this summer, what happened was I was reached out by uh, St. Dominic Academy. They were looking for someone to replace the person that was teaching French before. And it really came at a good time because at the museum, you know, we were suffering because of COVID. No one was visiting. We were down sure. to three days a week. And it really came at the right, had a like, perfect juxtaposition, if you will. So I was like, you know, I'm not, not really sure about it. I, I know a lot about French. I know how to talk to about it, people. You know, I know how to tell people about things and share it. And I, I'm passionate about sharing things when I'm passionate about the item or the subject. Sure. And so uh, I said to myself, you know, let's do this. Let's see where, which, uh, you know, what, what doors this is going to open. And uh, I definitely have not regretted it in the least, but I've really enjoyed it. It's stimulating, you know, seeing the children, um, you know, kind of seeing the light bulb in their eyes, you know, awesome. turn on, um, you know, making jokes. I, I always enjoyed that kind of rapport with people. Um, so it, it was a really easy transition and it's cool working in St. John's because it's a former parochial school that was started. Um, it was the first Fran- Franco-American, um, uh, higher than eighth grade school in all of Maine. So it was really cool, you know, having that story and hearing some sure. of the old, you know, the older staff working there and coming across families that had worked there for the first, I would say 10 years, maybe 15 years of his existence. It was bilingual French and English. Sure. Which no, cool. that's awesome. All right. I would like to, I mean, I guess, talk more broadly, I guess, about the, the picture of French language in Maine now. So I know sure. that's something that you're very much passionate about. Before we get going, can you give us just a quick thumbnail history of the French language in the state of Maine? Sure. I'll do my best to make it nice and concise for you. Sure. So, um, so here in the state of Maine, 
uh, you know, it goes all the way back to Samuel de Champlain and his 1604, um, you know, establishment on the St. Croix Island and doing, you know, routes, checking in different rivers and whatnot. Uh, later on, creation of a, the fort, Fort Pentaguet, which is in Castine, Maine, which was run by a really cool uh, baron from Poe in France and who became an Amer uh, Native American chief at the same time simultaneously. Really, really cool history. So it starts there. Awesome. French, and, uh, French and Indian Wars. Uh, Acadian expulsions uh, later in the seven, you know, uh, mid 18th and later on in the uh, 19th centuries, French, uh, Acadians and French Canadians coming to Northern Maine. And then uh, people coming as uh, soon as, you know, the 1840s after the, the, the Re Patriot Rebellion in Quebec coming into Maine and then really picking up after the Civil War all the way until about 1930 for French Canadians in terms of large masses that kind of trickles, trickles, trickles. 1990s, we start to see people coming from Togo and other West African countries, and then picking up since 2010, people coming from, you know, Burundi, Rwanda, Ivory Coast, Central African Republic, um, Mali, Chad, Congo, like Gabon, sure. many, many, like African nations speaking English. And of course, throughout that entire period, you'd also have European French speakers coming, um, but not great, not in, you know, droves by any mean. Gotcha. So, Essentially, French has been spoken in Maine well before there was Maine, like well before yes. there was yeah, actually, the United um, States. Yeah. Actually, Maine, it comes from the French word Maine from France, uh, the Fr France's Maine province. Um, it was actually officially voted upon that that was the etymology of the state of Maine's name, that it was voted that we took the French word, the French province Maine, because when the French explorers came, they said, oh, it looks a lot like our Maine in France. So, which That's is awesome. really cool. <laughs> right, so, so what... What do, what do we look like now then? Because I know the story that we get here in Manchester uh, a lot is of the declining use of the language narrative. Uh, right. what, what do we, we see in, in Lewiston Auburn? So in Lewiston Auburn, I would say it's pretty, un, I would say it's uncannily similar to Manchester. Um, Lewiston and Manchester, I think are even closer as entities in terms of Franco-American centers than, than we would be compared to Woonsocket or Fall River because I think Manchester, we've shared a lot of history in terms of Franco-American, you know, people have transited through in terms of um, size. And then the, our two cities have really, I would say compared to the other ones have held on to their Franco-American identity quite well. I mean, Woonsocket has two um, to a degree, but you know, Fall River and these other big names, New Bedford, um, Lowell, they, there was a lot of other peoples that came there and made their names and so here there hasn't been as many immigrants that had such a lasting impact such as French Canadians Franco-Americans uh, so today you can hear French being spoken here and there it's not very common as it once was um, I usually like to say most commonly you're going to see people speaking French either if they have gray hair <laughs> and older sure. um, or if they're, like I said, coming from uh, Francophone countries in Africa, that's the majority of the French language that you're gonna be here spoken. And you might hear that, you know, in a store, you might hear that um, in retirement homes is where you're gonna hear a lot of it in the hospital. I, you know, I tend to seek it out, if you will. And if I hear someone speaking like Lingala, so coming from Congo, like I can more than not, I'm pretty sure they'll speak French. So I will approach them and start speaking French to them. So sometimes people won't even speak it, but I can kind of like, I can, okay, this person, I'm pretty sure they speak French. And so I just kind of sure. approach them and start speaking, but you have to seek it out if that makes gotcha. sense. Yeah, no, no, it definitely does. And I guess my question for you then, because you're heavily involved in this is, is almost like a, 
looking towards the future, kind of where do we go from here? Because it seems yeah. to, it seems to me like a major uh, a major piece of the puzzle is we got to get younger folks involved. And yes. one of the things that I'm super jealous of is our friends in Louisiana find a way to get public schools in completely right. French immersion. Like, is that on the radar for you and me? It How is on the radar. Um, and it's funny that, you you know, that we talk about this and, and we think of it as being a new thing, but, you know, people have been talking about, you know, getting French into the school systems for quite some time, actually, even in here in, um, in, in New England, like, you know, New Hampshire and Maine, like even back in like in the 70s and 80s, there was tries for it, but it wasn't like a really ripe environment. And I would only be saying it's in the last 10 years that the environment has become uh, fertile for for these ideas. And so where we stand right now is Northern Maine, there's been, um, especially like Madawaska, Fort Kent, Frenchville, um, there has been immersion programs. There used to be for like a Madawaska, like a pretty strong French immersion program, but it's kind of like tapered out and that's really due to not because of lack of interest but because of funds um, sure. here in um in Lewis and Armin, there's been after school programs as like reacquisitioning or teaching at the same time as a heritage language but never as like a full-on immersion program such as our homologues in, in in Louisiana um but what's in terms of radar and I spoke about this back in December is there's been you know, I got together with some people from the Lucent School Department and said, hey, let's, let's see what we can do to make this happen. And that was all pre-COVID time. So a lot of that has become secondary and you know, tertiary priorities sure. at this point, which is totally understandable. No one can argue with that. But um, the interest is there. It's a question of knowing who's interested in having us organize ourselves uh, and making our case known. We're definitely working hand in hand with, um, you know, the, the, the French consulate in Boston, um, you know, organizations like I'm on for the Franco-American collection and that says, you know, they each kind of do their part, but there hasn't been like, and there will be, and I'm assuming in the near future, but like an actual committee that's saying, hey, we're bent on making this a reality. There's people that are interested, we're getting together more or less, but there hasn't been like a like a, a one consolidated effort, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, it seems to me like our our friends in Louisiana kind of have done a better job, at least than, than we have up here in New Hampshire, mm. uh, is is selling the value of it. Right. Like making it very clear to those uh, in public, you know, decision making roles that this is a smart investment if you put yes. it in your public schools. In but, places like New Hampshire and Maine, we have. Uh, you know, we even sometimes have, we have very significant arguments such as Louisiana, because look at our commercial partners just across the border. Of course. Um, you know, somewhere like Maine, I was actually tallying up different populations, you know, like neighboring entities. And there's actually more French speakers around Maine than there are English speakers. If you count all the French speakers from Quebec and New Brunswick and those who speak French already in Maine and New Hampshire, there's more of them than there are English speakers. No, <laughs> so see, it really awesome. makes sense for us to, to, to speak French for a variety of reasons. Uh, here in Maine, as it would be similar in New Hampshire, A, for that heritage language that's been present for quite some time, but B, also as a language to better incorporate those who are speaking French coming, you know, to, to Maine and New Hampshire at this point. Um, and that's the kind of dual, you know, duality that we're looking at presenting. Um, and, you know, and as we know, bilingual schools and bilingual education is, is incredibly benefic beneficial for students. Um, I think it was there in Newsweek or the Times, probably about five, six years ago, they were they were um, they were basically saying that um, bilingual, you know, lack of bilingualism, so monolingualism, is the 21st century's equivalent of illiteracy. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. 
So we really need to be preaching in a state like Maine that really is based off of tourism. There's not as much, much industry. What's now what's coming in, though, is we're seeing a lot of you know tech jobs and things like that. So if we had that added element of French, you know, in the tourism industry to better welcome our present our neighbors from the north, but also investment opportunities for those wanting to, you know, have an American location that speaks French would be absolutely huge. And that'd be greatly beneficial for one of the oldest states in the in the country in terms of demographics. Yes, so no, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's knowing when to and when and where and who to shake the right hands at the right time. It's knowing when to make those arguments to who we make those arguments. And I really do believe it's possible. It's just, it's, it's actually, in my opinion, um, it's all about uh, encouraging, uh, encouraging those who are already present here that this is what they need to invest their energy in and this is what they have. And that's probably our greatest proponent, uh, opponent, not opponent, but uh, hurdle that we have to overcome is convincing the people that actually come from here. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, to me, when you take the tourism dollars, you take the commerce potential, it yeah. makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, one more thing, I guess, comparison I would like to draw to our friends in Louisiana, I'm doing this a lot today, um, <laughs> is that they got together and they got themselves in the Francophonie, which was yeah. absolutely awesome. I've spoken to the gentleman who I was so excited off. for them. <laughs> yeah, and I've talked to them quite a bit. And, um, you know, if we're going to get a representation from New England, if that was kind of, you can't, first of all, we can't go as New England. Right. <laughs> uh, but if there was going to be a place in New England that could do it, I think it would be you guys. I think you guys would be the ones most likely. Is that on your radar or anybody yeah. else up there's radar at all? <laughs> this has been on my radar for probably the last 15 years, at least in terms like of it. a pipe dream. It is. There's been more and more talks. You know, I'm in talks with, um, you know, the consulate, French consulate you know, talks in like the different organization that already exists here in the state of Maine. So like the Acadian Archives in Fort Kent or the University right. of Maine in Fort Kent, uh, the University of Maine in Orno with like Suzanne Pinet, uh, the Franco-American Collection here. Uh, there's all kinds of organizations, Alliance Française, that, you know, more or less, you know, promote the French language, Franco-American identity and so, so forth. So there has been kind of this desire to to cooperate, you know, you know, with the, with the diversity of groups that we have to see what we can do to meet those terms to become part of the Franco, you know, La right. I know it would require a lot of work and there's not a lot of the things that we would need that would be in place. And one of the things is like what Louisiana has is like a school programming system. Uh, you need like more like signage and there's a variety of things, that, but um, it, it's definitely there. And uh, it's definitely on my radar. It'd be something that I would find really huge for us to, to be a part of. Um, and we would obviously, you know, we'd be the same man, but I think we would be representing New England in a lot of respects. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. That's why it, you'd have some help outside of Maine if, <laughs> if you guys were looking for for hours to be dedicated to this, because I think it would be a win, like you said, a win for all of us. If somebody yeah. in New England was able to get a seat at that table, I think that would be awesome. I mean, it's, it's the one with the French name, right? So mine is... <laughs> that's right. It's determined. It's official. Yeah, right, well, this, this is awesome. This has been way, way fun. But before I get out, I got to ask you this one more question. Yes, by all means. This is a question that I get a heck of a lot. Um, and I, it, it came up even when uh, I was doing the presentation for, at the University of Maine, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I'm not really sure. I think you're much better in a much better position to answer it. And that is, I hear from college professors of French, and they tell me that year after year, they find fewer and fewer students enrolling in their classes, and they want to know what can be done about it, what they can do, what we can do 
what the answer is. And that's a tough question for me. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how you would respond to that inquiry. Sure. So these are things that also I think about, um, you know, how to get, how to, especially to get younger people interested in. And to answer you quite frankly, it is definitely a multifaceted answer that in, incorporates notion, you know, um, qualities of the American society, uh, eco social economics, you know, a variety of things. But um, to answer you plainly, what I would say, and this is perhaps, this is my opinion, what we need to do is we need to have young people understand, and this is universal for all languages, but here in the case of French, that French is a living thing in the sense sure. that people around the world speak it. It is a very beautiful language that can be at the same time intellectual, it can be a silly language, it can be a fun language. And that's what we need to be presenting to people, that language is something that is lived. It is not something, and in other words, it's you learn it, but you, you don't tradition, you don't learn it in the classic sense. You have to live it. And that's what, if we were able to bring that to, to schools and to show, you know, you know, make it immersive in a way. Um, and, you know, what I like to do, for example, with my students is I show them the equivalent of what they like, but in French. A lot of people don't realize that you can listen to hip hop and rap. You can listen to popular music. You can listen to country and all, in French. And, and I talk about music because, you know, a lot of people enjoy that. So if I can find equivalent of that, then they're like, oh, okay. And it becomes all that more real for them. Um, it also, I like to do is like, you know, French isn't just wee oui, wee oui, baguette mimes, uh, right. berets in Paris. You know, it's French that's spoken right here in Maine. It's French spoken across the border. It's French spoken in Western Africa. It's French spoken in Lebanon, you know, and, and make them realize it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a global thriving and, you know, very um, uh, lively language. And that when they decide to take the steps to learn it, which is not easy, um, they become a part of that. They have that um, luxury, if you will, to become a part of that. Oh, that's awesome. I really appreciate it. Kevin, thank you very much for joining us here on the Fresh Canadian Legacy Podcast. Kevin Martin, thank you very much, sir. Thank you so much, Jesse. I'm so happy to have been here. Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at fclpodcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode.